Brethren, I invite you to turn in your copies of the Scriptures to Romans chapter 11. I know our bulletin says familial discord, 2 Samuel 15. That's not our text today. The title of today's sermon is Reformation Thoughts for 2017. Reformation Thoughts for 2017. And my, uh, I'm going to be using three texts today. Uh, Romans chapter 11, Habakkuk 2.14, and then Isaiah 40. Those are the three passages. Well, I'll be reading uh, just the Romans passage initially. So beginning in Romans chapter 11, verse 1, hear once again the very words of God. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is also, then, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if, if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have, have obtained it and the rest were blinded. Just as it was written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in His goodness. 
Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, and blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take their sins away. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, you have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, and through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom of knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, His ways past finding out. For who... For who, he has known, for who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in Heaven, In this year, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And Father, we thank You for that. Though that was but a small change in history, much larger changes of Reformation have taken place before and will yet take place. And Father, we pray that Your Scriptures would illumine our minds as to the work that You're doing from this passage, from Isaiah chapter 40, as well as Habakkuk chapter 2. Bless your people today. Encourage us in the faith from your Scriptures, we ask. And we ask this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Excuse me, brethren, as I get take a brief drink here. Having been ill most of the week, I chose to pick up a sermon that I started writing five years ago. It's not it. That's not going to be indicative of its length, I hope. Um, But I did start this sermon five years ago, and I never finished it. And I thought, well, since I've not been able to study a whole lot this week in preparation for the sermon, why don't I pick up one and finish it? There's I have a, a couple others that I've not yet finished, and. I thought this would be a good one to do since this is the 500th anniversary of the the, uh, posting of uh, Martin Luther's 95 Theses on the Wittenberg Chapel door. Now that's not going to come until October, but uh, this whole year, I don't know if you've seen in publications or on uh, news reports yet, um, there's lots of celebrating already taking place. In fact, this I think it's next week, 
There's a big conference at uh, Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, co-sponsored with uh, Midway Presbyterian Church on the, the Reformation. I really wish I could have gone to that. Uh, it's going to be filled with lots of great speakers. If you've got some time to, to get away and want some details, I can pass that on to you. But uh, that's one conference that's happening this year. And then, of course, there's uh, lots of trips over to Europe to, to do a Reformation walk through Europe, which would be nice, but most of us can't do that. Uh, but those things are happening this year. I want to start with a quote from Philip Schaff, uh, the great 19th century church historian, who wrote these words in, in the opening paragraph of his volume on the Swiss Ref- Reformation. Quote, Compared with intellectual and moral achievements, the conquests of the sword dwindle into insignificance. Ideal, ideas rule the world. Ideas are immortal. Those were Schaff's words. And throughout the history of the world, this observation of Philip Schaff has in large measure been found to be true. Where men have tried to subdue other men by means of might and weaponry made with hands, God has shown us that ideas are far more powerful in subjugating men and nations. And I would say that there have been three great reformations already in the history of men. The first being that of Adam and Eve when they fell into sin and subjected all creation to God's curse. That was a reformation of all creation unto the curse of God. The second reformation being the greatest of all reformations was the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. He came to earth to overturn the curse of God that resulted from Adam's sin and vanquish Satan's greatest tools, sin and death. That was the second great reformation and the greatest of all time. The third, the least of the three reformations, but certainly noticeable, was that of the Protestant Reformation which began in the 14th century with Thomas Bradwardine and John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, and extended throughout Europe through men like John Huss, Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bootser, John Calvin, Theodore Beza, Philip Melanchthon, and others. It is this third Reformation that I want us to consider briefly today. And we often think of Sunday, the Sunday before All Saints Day, October 31st, as Reformation Sunday, as it was, in, uh, was on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this year, that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. Well, soon after that event, all of, all of Europe was ablaze with some ideas that had been obscured to the common man since the days of Augustine in the 5th century. Chief of those ideas was and is the notion of man being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as taught in the Scriptures alone. These four ideas would grip much of the church of Jesus Christ so as to create a schism between the church hierarchy and many priests and laity. Though not the, er, though not the, the early clarion call of the Reformation, these four solas, sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christus, and sola scriptura, would later become the defining attributes of those who called themselves reformers. 
During the years following Martin Luther's spark, when he nailed those theses to the chapel door, two branches of the Reformation developed, that of the German variety and the other of the Swiss variety. It is not that these two nations intentionally developed their own Reformation identities. Rather, the emphasis each put on aspects of the Reformation took them in slightly differing but noticeable directions. We identify the Swiss Reformation rather than those of the German variety. We, I, I'm sorry, we identify with the Swiss Reformation rather than those of the German variety. And having referred to these distinctive branches of Reformation thought, it's incumbent to identify the differences for the sake of clarity. Briefly, though both the German Reformation and Swiss Reformations occurred in large measure because of the abuses of the Roman Church, in their respective countries, their responses were slightly different. As Schaff points out, the differences between the German and Swiss reformers were theological rather than religious. They affect the intellectual concept, but not the heart and the soul of piety. Initially, the significant real theological difference was the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. The German reformers maintained a real bodily presence, while the Swiss reformers maintained a real spiritual presence. Later differences in church government, discipline, worship, and practice developed, and they would overshadow the theological lines of separation. Nevertheless, I want to bring back to your, your, the, the notion, these theological differences did not, did not uh, uh, though they defined the different groups, they did not drive... Uh, uh, substantial wedges between their piety, the way they lived out their faith, trusting alone in Christ for salvation, the Scriptures being the primary authority of all faith and life. The German Reformed churches were influenced most greatly by Martin Luther and thus bear his name on many of their churches. The Swiss Reformation, however, was influenced by two men, Calvin and Zwingli neither of which have their names on churches these days. But both branches of the Protestant church reacted against the abuses of the Roman church, and both wanted to reform the Roman church from within. As the Roman church could no longer tolerate the reforms being sought by these men, each was excommunicated under penalty of death, having been expelled by the Roman church. The Lutherans remained closer in practice to the Roman church while the Swiss reformers moved further away. So what, all, what is the importance of all this with regard to our, our, our passage from Romans 11? Consider these words from that passage once again regarding Israel and Gentiles. Paul wrote, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who were of my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is reconciling the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? God judged his people who were unfaithful, and them, their, their being cast off by God wrought reconciliation to the Gentiles. Verse 16, for if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if 
some of the branches are broken off, and you being a wild olive tree are grafted in among them, and with them become partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. That's a very real warning to the church. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell Severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. You see the mercy of God in this whole circumstance? God is crafting a history that brings all men on the globe all, from all tribes, every tribe, nation, people, and tongue, as is described in the book of Revelation, he is, he is grafting people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people into the, into the olive tree of, of life, into His Son, Jesus Christ. And if He can do that with, with wild olive branches, can he, can he resurrect those unbelieving branches that were cut off because of unbelief? Can He bring resurrection even to His own people that He first chose in Abraham? Indeed. Well, much like Israel, the early church of the first seven centuries was faithful to its roots. That is, faith in Christ alone for all things. Yet superstition, false doctrine, and sin crept into the church such that virtually all vestiges of what God had created were lost. The root was good, but the branches were dead and dying. Paul reminds us in Romans 9-11 through that God is pruning an olive tree throughout history. It doesn't end in Romans. It ends at the culmination of Christ's return. But God is pruning this olive tree. He cuts off dead and dying branches and engrafts wild branches into His olive tree that they would bear fruit. Those engrafted wild branches are us, the Gentiles. He's brought us in from all nations. Even in our own church, we have people from all around the world here. We, we have a visitor today from Brazil. That's wonderful. Faith touches the entire globe. And God is engrafting people into the church from all over the globe. Now, as the passage teaches us, God can and will revive those old dead branches and graft them in again to the olive tree, which He promises His uh, people uh, in the lineage of Abraham. But there remains a warning to the Gentiles. If we don't remain faithful, by faith, we too could be discarded if we turn on the faith that God has given us. I believe a significant pruning of the unfaithful Gentiles took place during the Reformation period, the days of Martin Luther and John Calvin. I also believe a revival of the true faith took place at that same time. The grafting of in of fruitful branches. 
I also believe a new reformation must take place with the pruning of dead branches and the engrafting of fruit-bearing branches in our day and in the days to come. My hope is that the new reformation will dwarf the reformation of the 15th and 16th centuries such that the reformation of those days will be but a footnote in the history books and that the new reformation bears so much fruit that it overwhelms our understanding of how God can work. Now, why do I think that that's necessary? And why do I think it's even possible? God is at work pruning the olive tree. He doesn't finish that work. And I want to pose some questions to the congregation as we think about this. This in the year of the 500th year of the Reformation. When will God end His pruning of the olive tree of Romans 11? When will that end? Well, I believe it's obvious that God will not end His pruning of the olive tree until the consummation of history in Christ's return. He is actively doing it. The second question I want to pose comes from our second passage, Habakkuk chapter 2. When shall Habakkuk's prophecy in Habakkuk 2.14 be accomplished? Let me remind you what that prophecy is. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Again, I believe this will happen. This will be accomplished by Christ, at Christ's return. But the great movement in that direction, the discipling of the nations, must come to fruition before, quote, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, end quote, covers the earth. And if you didn't catch it, that, that means I'm a post-millennialist. My third question is this. Can Reformation take place without upheaval? Can Reformation take place without upheaval? We have every reason to be confident that God is advancing His kingdom in the midst of what seems to be so much upheaval, even in our own day. Such is the description that Isaiah the prophet gives us in chapter 40, where we read, beginning in verse 1, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain shall and hill brought low. The crooked places made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. If that doesn't recall to mind uh, one of the anthems from Handel's Messiah, go back home this afternoon and, and play it again. Think about that. Think of this. Comfort, comfort ye my people, Isaiah is to, to tell the people of God. Salvation has come to you, for you've received from the Lord's hand double before all your sins. Your iniquities are pardoned. God has brought salvation near to you such that you've gotten a double portion and your iniquities have been pardoned. 
But in the midst of that, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And how do you do that? Every valley shall be exalted. Valley exalted, brought up. Every mountain and hill brought low. Mountains and hills have to be leveled. Crooked places have to be straightened out. And rough places made smooth. That sounds like a lot of earth moving to me. That sounds like a lot of upheaval. But that's what God is doing to bring about comfort for His people. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed in the midst of all of this as God levels the valleys and the mountains, as He straightens the crooked places, as He makes the rough places plain. His glory is being revealed in all of that. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. In this passage, God tells us through Isaiah that we will be comforted while we are making a highway, a highway to God in a desert, a desert place, a deserted place. Where does our comfort come? It comes from the knowledge that God has forgiven the sins of His people and He is reforming the world around us. The valleys are being made are being raised, the mountains made low, the crooked places made straight, the rough places made smooth. In other words, everything seems to be in a state of upheaval, but the end of that upheaval is that God is making His glory known to all the world as the waters cover the seas. Brethren, it is estimated that the world is inhabited by 7.49 billion people. And of that number, 2.7 billion reside in just two countries, China and India. It is also estimated that India will overtake China as the most populated country in the next decade. In the history of the world, the world population took approximately 5,500 years to grow to a billion in number. It has been since 1800 that about, or about 200 years that the population has added another 6.5 billion in population in just 200 years. By the way, the United States is the third most populated country in the world. I didn't realize that until recently. Let me ask this. Has this surprised our God that 6.5 billion people rose up in the last 200 years? Was he asleep at the wheel of providence when these people were born? Oh, I'm surprised this has happened. No. How will God's prophecy in Habakkuk 2.14 be realized with such a mass of humanity that continues to grow? It's estimated that by 2100 that there will be uh, close to 15 billion people on the earth. I am of the opinion that only a reformation that dwarfs that of the 16th century and the great revivals of the 19th and early 20th centuries could accomplish all His holy will proclaimed in Habakkuk 2.14. Now think about this. There were less than a billion people during the Protestant Reformation. Less than a billion people. And now there's seven and a half billion people. The next reformation 
brethren, the next Reformation, and it is coming, will make the last Reformation pale in comparison. It will be so great and so massive that we don't understand it. There is an inevitability to God's bringing salvation to the populations of the world. And only by His mighty hand and His outstretched arms can it come to pass. I'm going to read the remainder of Isaiah 40 in just a moment. But I want us to give thought to this as we raise our covenant children. Do we raise our covenant children giving them a perspective of God subduing His enemies, making His enemies a footstool for His Son's feet? Do we think about it that way? Do we, do we share with our children? And I'll have to admit, you can ask my own children, I have not been good at this, to, to see a vision of God's kingdom covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. I was reminded how important that was this past week on Friday. Friday, I, ch- I was asked to be the fraternal delegate to the OPC Presbytery meeting uh, in Cincinnati, and I went. A young man who many of you know came under care of that presbytery. Uh, James Brinkerhoff. And met his new wife. First time I've met her. They were married just a couple months ago. James has dedicated his life to taking the Gospel to Muslim nations. And not just any Muslim nations, but some that are very, very, very dangerous places. And I can't speak to that. But he's, he's uh, dedicated his life to doing that. And he shared with the presbytery his, his desire to continue in that work. Now, here's a young man in his 20s just married. And he's got a vision for seeing Muslim nations come to Christ. Brother, we need to cast the vision to our children. Young men, think about this. There's, there's no higher calling in life than to take the Gospel to an un, unreached people. There is no higher calling than that. Consider it. Consider that as your calling. Consider the importance of it. And consider the joy that would come as you see God engraft those wild olive tree branches into the root. Jesus Christ. Now I want to share the rest of Isaiah chapter 40 with you because it speaks to God's sovereignty in the midst of all of these things. Beginning in verse 6, the voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Say to the cities of the world, this is my commentary. Say to the cities of the world, 
Behold our God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and His arms shall rule for Him. Behold, His, reso- His reward is with Him, and His work before Him. He will feed His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with His arms, and carry them in His bosom, and gently lead, them, lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure? Weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or or as His Counselor has taught Him? With whom did He take counsel or who's instructed Him and taught Him in the path of justice? Who taught Him knowledge and showed Him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as, the, as small dust on the scales. Look, He lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for burning, burnt offerings. All nations before Him are as nothing, and they are counted by Him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what, likens, or what likens, likeness will you compare to Him? The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who searches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when He also will blow on them, and they will wither, and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To who then do you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might and the strength of His power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, O speak of Israel, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, And my just claim is passed over by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Brethren, that's the clarion call for the church. There is a reformation coming. We will either be part of it, or we may be on the outside looking in. We could be engrafted in all the more with those who are being added, becoming all the more fruitful. Or, 
We could be cut off. God calls us. God calls us to do the work of the kingdom. Let's not grow grow weary in well-doing. The promise here is, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let us pray together.